You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. Richard with you here and I'm taking you through until midday today talking about the arts and culture and what's happening around Melbourne town. On today's show uh, we'll be talking comic books with Bernard Callio. We'll be talking Melbourne Fringe with Felix Preval who's the producer of the Festival and Artist Services. That's his official title. Um, and we're gonna, I might actually ask him what that means. How do you produce artist services? Uh, anyway, uh, registrations are now on for artists for Melbourne Fringe so Felix will be joining us at 9.30 to chat about that. Uh, We're also going to find out about an exhibition that's on in Hawthorne at the Hawthorne Arts Centre Town Hall Gallery called Conflicted Adversaries in Art, which is looking at broadly at the notion of conflict in art. So rather than specifically focusing on the Gallipoli centenary on World War One, I, I don't know about you, but I'm already suffering a bit of Anzac fatigue given the relentless advertising and TV programming and exhibitions and plays and performances by orchestras. It, it, it's kind of getting a little overwhelming. That said, Black Diggers, which I saw last night and which Wesley Enoch was talking about on the the show with the Breakfasters just recently, is brilliant. Do go and see it. Anyway, also on the show today, um, a, a very intimate solo performance, Is This Somewhere You've Been Before, which comes to us from Perth. Uh, We'll be dancing on the radio a little bit later on this morning as well. And we'll be chatting with the co-artistic director of Bell Shakespeare, Peter Evans, who will be taking over the reins of the company creatively when John Bell steps down at the end of this year. So we'll be chatting to him about the company, but also about As You Like It, which is on at the Art Centre, previewing from the 23rd of April. Uh, we're going to talk, speaking of sound and colour, well, colour at least. Uh, Bernard Callio joins me in the studio to talk comic books, a medium in which colour and line and story and tone and all these things come together in uh, sequential visual narratives called graphic novels or comics or kind of just, what do you call them? I call them uh, pictures and words. I talk, call them telling stories with pictures. I call it uh, hieroglyphics for, for, for the modern age. I call it the literature of the 21st century. I've got a lot of words. Clearly. A lot of, lot of, lot of words for comics. Excellent. <laughs> um, it's a, as, as usual, you know, I, I always I just come in going, oh, my God, there's so much to, to talk about, of course. Well, I was know. thinking, that, I mean, this is a monthly segment drawn out in which we talk about what's going on in the world of comic books and you, you review some titles for us and make some recommendations and tell us about events and films and festivals. Um, there's a hell of a lot, hap- as always, happening, but th- I believe there's a big thing in particular happening this coming weekend. This very weekend at the Northcote Town Hall, we have the fourth... Uh, iteration of the Home Cooked Comics Festival, 
Uh, a beautifully named festival because it really gives you that image of uh, those comic book makers in their in, in in their kitchens with a with a with a, a boiling pot on the stove, cooking up their ink, uh, which they're about to uh, scrawl onto a page into a little narrative for you. It's very it is a, it's a really good uh, description because uh, it's it's all about celebrating the local uh, comics culture and comics makers. Now, if we're talking about a comic book festival, mm. are we talking predominantly booths with people selling comics? Are we talking wow. panel discussions? Yeah. Are we talking live drawing classes? What's the deal? Ladies and gentlemen, it's like it's like we've talked about this beforehand, but we haven't. This year... Richard, this year, uh, uh, Home Cooked expands, and, and really that's very much... So it's, it's uh, put on by the Darabin Council, Darabin um, Arts uh, Leg, Arm, Foot... Toe of the of the Darabin Council, but they've teamed up with Squishface Studios, the mighty Squishface Studios, uh, in Brunswick, uh, over the last couple of years, and particularly Sarah Howell, uh, great organizer of of comics events and speaker about comics on this very channel. This channel station station station. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> mixing my mediums. <laughs> um, Sarah Howell and Sarah Howell has this year expanded it from, as you were saying a moment ago, Richard, sort of a, a, a hall with lots of stalls and people selling into a program. We've, we've got speakers. We've got people who've been uh, shipped in in shipping containers for, in panels from uh, other states and other countries. So it's really expanded this year. Which is pretty exciting. So on Friday night, uh, the festival opens with drinks at Snug Gallery, 447 High Street, which is a couple of blocks north of Separation Street. So come along to that. And then on Saturday, this is and this is the new part of the of the festival. Uh, there on the the, the the Saturday day, there's a whole day of activities, of panels, of um, drawing that you can join in with. And it's on on the Sunday that we have the what's called the market day in the uh, town hall proper, in the Northcote Town Hall at the, at the crest of the High Street. Uh, Rucker's Hill there. So on the Saturday, as I say with these with these talks, we've got Dylan Horrocks, the amazing New Zealand uh, comic book maker who's been brought across by a special crowdfunding home-cooked thing uh, to talk with Dean Rankin, local comic book maker, and... Silver Ledger Award winner. So we have the Ledger Awards. So as, 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 as we were saying a moment ago, the comics events in Melbourne don't let up. But a couple of weeks ago, we had the Ledger Awards, which is, you know, Comics Night of Nights, where people get their silver ledgers and gold ledgers. And Dean Rankin got his silver ledger for Itty Bitty Bunnies in Rainbow Pixie Candyland Save Christmas. <laughs> what a title. <laughs> what a title. What a title. Uh, so, D- Dean, but Dean, very interesting cartoonist, uh, has worked for Bongo Comics, for the Simpsons Comics, and he will be in conversation with Dylan, Dylan Horrocks, who's a. Uh, uh, who's known particularly for his graphic novel Hicksville, uh, but a, a, a great commentator on comics, but also quite a politically engaged cartoonist as well. Uh, and then on Saturday afternoon, come along for a comics jam. So that's from 1.30 to 6pm. Come along. There's a whole lot of comic book uh, local uh, talent, as well as Madeline Rosca, who's a manga, mangaka, as we say, manga, manga artist. From Tasmania, uh, Thomas Campi, who's in fact an Italian but now lives in Australia, uh, and, and a bunch of locals. Give uh, pay ten dollars at the door, you get soup and waffles, and 
a drawing jam fest, uh, which is very exciting. So the Dean Rankin and, and Dylan Horrocks talk is at 12 midday on Saturday and then the comics jam from 1.30 to 6, soup and waffles included. <laughs> what a civilised idea. <laughs> very civilised. I expect us to have some um, uh, cucumber sandwiches on the side. Uh, and then Sunday is the big day, the market day. So come along. There are talks. There's a character sculpture workshop. So if you've got an idea for a character, you can sculpt it out of uh, clay. There's an inking demonstration by Bobby N. There are kids workshops that day, so it's quite a kids, it's a very kids and family friendly day. Uh, I'll be running a, the uh, killer comics quiz, so come along, answer, some, you don't have to kill anybody, you just have to answer questions and you'll win books. Uh, there'll be life modelling, clothed life modelling, uh, and excitingly later in the, in the day, a feet draw off. A feet drawer, yeah, as that, in not an amazing feet, but people have problems drawing feet. So yeah, this is a, a way to encourage them to do it better. That's right. Okay, that's right. So that's that's the Home Cook Comics Festival. It's all happening this weekend at Northcote Town Hall. For more info, given that it's presented by both uh, Darabin City of Darabin and Squishface Studio, if you go to squishfacestudio.com, Com, you will find out links and details and photos and more details about the Home Cooked Comics Festival at Northcote Town Hall. At Northcote Town Hall. Uh, one of the books that I'm pretty sure will be rep- represented there on, 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 uh, on Sunday by Doug Holgate, the Oh, the artist of a book called Maralinga, written by Jen Breach, art by Doug Holgate, one of the great local cartoonists. Jen is a, um, a comics writer, a Australian who now li- at, at presently lives in New York, and her interest is very much in yang, young, at young, yang adult fiction, which is a sort of a manga mix-up. No, 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 young adult fiction. Um, Maralinga is their idea, uh, which is an alternate history stemming from the 1956 British nuclear tests in the Woomera in Australia. And this Maralinga is set 300 years later. Uh, It opens in Melbourne in the year 2256. 2256, 300 years later. And it's a ruined post-apocalyptic... Melbourne, you can see the crunched up town hall there. Crumbling ruins. Crumbling ruins, bit of crumbling ruins. Wild dogs prowling the streets. Thank you, thank you. This is good. Yes, yes, yes. As opposed to gangs of ticket inspectors. That's right. That's right. That's, it's, everything's updated. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a Mikey. No, there's no Mikey guy. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, but the... And you've got a, a, a lone young woman. She's sort of 20 years old, maybe a bit younger than that. And she's got a gun. There's a, there's a, there are monsters. There are monsters. He found the monsters, folks. It doesn't take long before no. you get yeah, kind of yeah. like... Attacked. Something going gronk, yeah. thum, <laughs> in that wonderful way of those onomatopoeic uh, words that burst out of comic book pages to give you a, 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 a sense of the impact of what is happening. Indeed. The so, gronk, thum page, very Jack Kirby, it makes me think of. Very the classic monster comic. Uh, this is a beautiful production. It's in colour, but in very muted colour. Uh, Doug Holgate's incredibly uh, uh, um, uh, assured uh, comic uh, drawer, the, maker the, of books. The colouring is very Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it begins in kind of greys and, and dark greens yes. and blues, yes. so it's got a, a, 
cool, cold, dark, gloomy feel to it. Later, it gets more autumnal. Autumnal, indeed. In, yeah. uh, in keeping and, with and the it, seasons. And indeed, that's, a, that's, a, that's as far as I can tell, because it's, it's this beautifully mysterious, this first issue of Maralinga. Uh, it is very sparse on the words. And uh, so the first, half, first part is that blue section <laughs> uh, Richard was talking about. And then we go into this autumnal thing. And... and uh, it's memory there too, as for, for the main character. Yeah. Uh, so, Marilinga by Jen Breach and Douglas Holgate, published by, and this is a great publishing house, mm. uh, the House of Skullduggery. www.skullduggery.com.au. And that's Doug's house. That's where Doug lives. It's a beautifully drawn, beautifully presented comic book, the first in a series set in a post apocalyptic Australia. Actually, as I was reading it the other day, I was thinking of On the Beach. As well, that that you know, it's that that beautiful idea of Melbourne as the last bastion of a ruined world. Yeah, um, so yeah. Marilinga set Marilinga. in a in a post-apocalyptic Melbourne, uh, a much more contemplative and thoughtful post-apocalyptic Australia than you might see in Mad Max. <laughs> Precisely. It's really you know, yeah, you get to choose. Or in fact, you could, I guess, you know, you could, you've got you've got you both your both your apocalypses for different for different uh, moods. We have both kinds: country and western. <laughs> western. Uh, if you're going, uh, if you're keen on thinking a bit more about your comics, you should get yourself over uh, pretty soon, actually, May, May 15th, which is a Friday, and May 16th, Saturday, to Adelaide for the second Inkers and Thinkers conference. So we had the first Inkers and Thinkers last year, went along, it was excellent, uh, presented at the University of Adelaide. So if you just, uh, and this year's um, theme is alternative forms and voices. And so in this, we've got, uh, there's talks uh, about alternative superheroes. There's uh, conversations about cosplay or pe- presentations, papers. It's an academic symposium conference. Uh, there's uh, some uh, a, a, a chap from New South Wales who will be presenting about Turkish LGBTQ comics. We've got lovely Ronnie Scott who'll be talking about comics and the um, what the uh, the address, the main address to the conference will be by the marvelous cartoonist Pat Grant. Um, so that's Inkers and Thinkers at the University of Adelaide, May fifteenth and sixteenth. And if you look up Inkers and Thinkers and Thinkers and Thinkers, you will find them. Inkers and Thinkers. Inkers so and Thinkers in Adelaide. In Adelaide. So in there's Adelaide. stuff in Sydney. Uh, sorry, there's in Sydney. One day, there will be. be Comics off, but actually not at the moment because it's been hit by a typhoon. I hope everyone's okay. Exactly. But yes, comic stuff uh, in here in Melbourne at Northcote Town Hall. Comic stuff in Adelaide. uh, Comic stuff in post-apocalyptic Melbourne. (laughs) That's right. It's all happening. It really is all happening. Um, And I just did have to say uh, that um, obviously. I think that the things happening in Melbourne are amazing. Uh, I did, did find out yesterday that uh, good old Marvel comics, you know, Marvel over in America, they're doing um, another Secret Wars, which is an enormous crossover for all their, all their comics. Um, and the first one was done in 1984. It was totally amazing because, of course... So that was you... Crisis on Infinite Earths. No, that no? was DC. That was DC, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So yep. Secret Wars is Marvel. Okay, but question, which came first? Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths or... Where's Zoran? Yeah, no, yeah. I, I can't... I... 
I think secret. No, I can't tell. I can't say. Anyway, giant, massive crossover design to get everybody buying comics that they don't normally buy. Yes. Uh, tying it all into one massive world-changing event. Which exactly. Of course, isn't really that world-changing. <laughs> Given that there's a reboot yeah, every week, uh, they go to the they go to the not every week. They get the comic shoe shop every every other week, every other week. So, but but the, 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 some of the tr- tr- um, descriptions of this new Secret Wars, which is masterminded by Jonathan Hickman, who was the, is the Walking Dead writer and has now been part of the you know Marvel. Battleship. Uh, uh, the description of Secret Wars is take all the major characters and make them fight each other. <laughs> uh, 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 I did read Axel Alonso, the Marvel editor in chief's uh, statement about, about this and the world that they go and fight in. <clears throat> it is called, dear listener, Battle World. <laughs> and this guy Alonso said, there is only one reality. And it is Battle World. That is the only reality. <laughs> anyway, that, uh, just, you know, I think reports from... And, uh, and you know, I, I... I think you're somewhat cynical I, about I'm, giant uh, corporate-owned fist, comic book publishing fist, fist, conglomerates. Fist. I, must, I must be. And I, and I do apologise to those friends of mine who will be eagerly and interestingly, interestedly uh, buying, buying Secret Wars with all the revelations that it will uh, contain about the... the Battle World. Uh, and, uh, mm. Speaking of Marvel Comics, and uh, have, have you... To... Well, you started it. <laughs> have you read the current iteration of Ms. Marvel, uh, the young Muslim superhero? What? No way, it's really? It's apparently their biggest selling title at the moment, so I've been meaning to investigate. So I hope that you, with your wow, uh, knowledge my, of all things comic books, my, my, may have picked it up. Wow, but. no, that's, that's, where, that's where my radar really... That's where my spidey sense really fails me. Um, uh, I have to pick that up, although what was interesting, actually, in this article about this Secret Wars extravaganza was that they said, oh, look, there's a... T- you know, everybody's tied in together. Everybody's doing the same thing. Oh, there's a couple of titles that uh, are sort of hiving off by themselves. One of them, uh, one of them is... I think one of them was Miss Marvel and the other one was Black Widow. Both of them, uh, of course, female superheroes uh, and increasingly, you know, respect that the... the, um Comic book companies are getting women writers to write those uh, those those titles, and they were, those, those titles were sort of heading off by themselves, not being part of the great big bash fest on Battle World, going off and having a little kind of quiet moment to themselves, which I really, you know, I, I, I salute. Self-contained. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, uh, on a serious note, I am always happy to see more diversity in mainstream comics publishing. Uh, we've just had news of a, one of the uh, original X-Men characters coming out as gay in a new storyline as well. So, uh, uh, and I do, I haven't yet picked up copies, but I'm... Uh, very, kind of people in the know yeah. are telling me that Ms. Marvel is a is a really well written, sophisticated, well, intelligent I'll, I'll comic. Get it. We can share it. We can talk about it. A young Muslim uh, yeah. woman as a superhero. Superb. So bring Superb. more of that, please. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think we should wrap it up there, Bernard. Let's wrap it up. I'll see you in a month's time. See you in a month's time to talk more comic books and uh, maybe who knows? We could have all manner of crazy announcements to talk about then. No doubt. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts. Uh, someone whose life is not languorous is Felix Preval, who is a the producer of Melbourne Fringe Festivals, and his official title is Producer Festival and Artist Services. Uh, and he joins us because registrations for Fringe Artists are now open. 
They are indeed. Thank you for having me along this morning, Richard. Uh, very great pleasure. Definitely not a languorous time for me right now, though, <laughs> may I say, one of my favourite Luxmith songs, and I am a massive Luxmith fan. Oh, good. Now, it's obviously it's not uh, a quiet time for you because not only can artists kind of apply to be in Fringe through the website and just put in their application, and Fringe is an open access festival, so anybody can apply to be part of it, but... I'm imagining that a lot of them are calling you first to talk about their ideas and say, I'm thinking about doing this, but maybe I don't have a venue or I want to do a walking tour. Should I do kind of seven shows a week or should I just do two or three? So you get to proffer lots of advice, I'm guessing. Absolutely. I mean, right now the phone is ringing off the hook, uh, but every single person on staff is answering it uh, to to try and talk through your questions. But obviously, particularly myself and our fabulous artist liaison, as Anthony Beasley. Uh, and yeah, I mean, one of the things that we offer, uh, as well as a, a really comprehensive sort of artist development program, is this artist services service where we're more than happy to sit down over the next month and and talk with you one-on-one about the work that you want to put on in Melbourne Fringe and and help you work out how it might fit into the greater festival program uh, or just to take your call and and talk you through our incredibly extensive potential venue starter base which can be a little bit intimidating because Essentially, anything can be a venue in Melbourne Fringe. And has been in the past. I've taken great delight in seeing shows in uh, in galleries, in attics, in basements that you had literally had to crawl into on your hands and knees, in the back seats of cars. Uh, anything and everywhere can be a, a Melbourne Fringe venue, and any kind of show can be a Fringe show. Because Would it be fair to say that people sometimes have a stereotype about what a Fringe show is? They're thinking it's either some kind of avant-garde performance or maybe it's comedy, because uh, those are certainly the two largest categories, performance and comedy. They certainly do uh, make up the majority of the festival, um, performance and comedy, uh, but absolutely anything can find its way into that program. And over the last few years, we've been really excited to see significant growth in, in dance, particularly contemporary dance, uh, but also visual arts and, and music. And we really would love to see more musicians, contemporary musicians, bands, using the Fringe as a platform for presenting their work to new audiences and and maybe experimenting a bit with form. Um, A great example of that experimentation with form from a Fringe several years ago, I remember seeing some uh, classically trained musicians deciding to do something a bit different, which involved them walking around as they carried their instruments, which doesn't sound that exciting, but given that like a classical music recital with a, a string quartet is usually static and staid, actually seeing people getting up with their violin and, and with their cello and carrying them around and moving as they played with which with a cello was a bit of a challenge um it brought new life to to the arena and i think encouraged both those musicians and their audience to to think about new ways to not only present their work but new ways to access it as well so which to me is what fringe is all about it's about breaking down those traditional borders around art forms and saying no you, you can do anything absolutely and we uh 100% here to help you kind of facilitate that that experimentation uh, and we feel like every year the practice in the festival gets more diverse uh, as does our audience which is great people are hungry to see something different uh, you know in a non-traditional space it's spring, it's September, spring has sprung people want to climb out of hibernation and, and see something exciting so 
if you've got a great idea, now is the time to call us and talk about it. Talk me through the, the, the registration process, just to give people an idea of what happened. Say I want to do a show, I want to do an intimate uh, performance piece uh, performed in a bar in which the audience of one meets me, the performer of one, um, for what they don't know is going to be a histrionic, dramatised breakup that eventually turns into a comedy. So that's my idea for a show. How do I go about registering that? That is an excellent setup for a friend show, Richard. I would love to see you register that. Uh, so first of all, uh, you need a venue, as you say. So venue is probably one of the first things to start organising. Uh, you're more than welcome to call us for advice or to download our potential venues database off the website, uh, which is pretty comprehensive, though, like I said, basically anything can become a fringe venue. Uh, we're more than happy to help with that. Second, you need uh, a title for your show. Lord knows some of the best fringe shows I've ever been involved with were just a title at registration and a commitment to writing the rest. So a good title will take you a long way in the fringe. Uh, and then an image. Uh, and that, that's really like the fundamental things that you need to get your registration off the ground. Uh, those you'll need by the end of May, May 22nd. So May 22nd is when the registration period closes and there's a brand new registration portal. So you could just go to the, the regular Melbourne Fringe website, which is www.melbournefringe.com.au, and that will give you some dates and details and there's information that you can download. But if you go to um, http colon slash slash go to reg.melbournefringe.com.au and a brand new kind of way to register. And I believe it's a longer registration window this year as well. So instead of just a couple of weeks, it's been expanded to encourage more people to apply. Yeah, we're giving more people the opportunity to kind of sit down and look at what it would mean to be a part of the Fringe. That's definitely part of expanding those dates. Also because it is a new system and we know that our artists were used to our old system. Uh, so we want to give them a bit more time to sit down and have a look at it. It's it's fairly comprehensive. It's pretty similar. But, you know, new, challenging, challenge of the new what Fringe is all about. <laughs> now, am I right, Felix, in thinking that Melbourne Fringe this year overlaps with the September school holidays? That is correct, Richard. We moved the dates uh, two years ago, and now we do overlap with the holidays. But this year, we're going to try and capitalise on that by reaching out further to the independent arts community to look at extending on our family programs. So we have a kids program each year. Uh, and, and myself and definitely everyone at Melbourne Fringe are really excited about what we see as kind of a new wave of independent artists creating work, theatre, comedy work for young people, and we'd love to see a stronger program of that in the Fringe because we know that there is an audience for it. Uh, absolutely. Given uh, the age of the Fringe Festival, there's plenty of people who've grown up as the festival has grown up who certainly may have, kind of, 35 years ago, been kind of wild, hell-raising young early 20-something artists who have now got kids and want to take them to quality shows. They don't just want to take them to the, the kind of commercial kids' entertainment that tours national. They want to take them to, to more bespoke, creative, genuine, artistic work that is made for kids. Absolutely. And it, it's a fallacy to think that uh, entertainment for young people is only $120 tickets to Peppa Pig, though Peppa Pig, what a great cartoon, uh, or, you know, panto in the school hall, um, though 
I cut my teeth theatrically in Panto of the School Hall. So both have their place, but there is way more in the middle. Absolutely. Now, this year's Melbourne Fringe Festival uh, is running from the 16th of September to the 4th of October and really is a just... For me, the summation of everything creative about Melbourne, it's an opportunity to, uh, because of the way that, for example, the Fringe Hub is programmed, you can see multiple shows in, an, in one night. You might start out with a, an intimate one-on-one show created in a cupboard off a bar in the town hall, then go and see some comedy, then go and see some theatre, then go and see some cabaret, and maybe end with a, a dance uh, and a drink in the festival club where there might be a free show on. Who knows? Um, so it's a great opportunity to see work because it's not just the Fringe Hub, Northcote Town Hall, gas works other kind of venues around town become fringe hubs of their own and then yet every single gallery bookshop uh, is a potential fringe venue for you to take over and present a show in so you've got until the 22nd of may to register for this year's melbourne fringe festival and i would highly advise calling the the very friendly felix preval here or any of the other friendly fringe staff to uh, to chat about your show if you do want to put one on uh, felix what's the the fringe office number for people to call if they would like to do so right now it's nine six six zero nine six zero zero though technically we don't open for another 11 minutes so you know okay. have a cup of tea first and and compose your ideas and just jot down a couple of notes so that when you do talk to somebody you can uh, tell them succinctly what it is you want to do uh, and i believe that registrations are still open for the fringe hub at the moment as well that's correct and so this sunday until this Sunday, expressions of interest for programming in the Fringe Hub are open. So if you're interested in being presented in a festival-managed venue, uh, you've got about 72 hours to put that together and email it through to me. Uh, so for more information, as you, I said, you can go to melbournefringe.com.au, which will give you some background details and artists' resources uh, about the Fringe itself. And then specifically the new artists' uh, registration uh, section is just reg.melbournefringe.com.au and you've got until the 22nd of May to, to register your show for this year's Melbourne Fringe Festival. It's going to be a good festival, Felix. I can feel it in my bones. Oh, excellent. I can't wait to see you there, Richard. Uh, you'll be seeing quite a bit of me, I suspect. Felix Preval uh, is the producer of Festival and Artist Services at Melbourne Fringe. As always, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Richard Watts taking you through until midday today. It's time for us to talk visual art now. As you've probably noticed, unless you're kind of a hermit hiding away from the world entirely, in which case, why are you listening to this program? Uh, you probably would have noticed that there's a lot of focus at the moment on war. Uh, we have the centenary of the First World War, the centenary of the Gallipoli campaign. Uh, so it's a topical subject and one that, to my mind, is being somewhat, the focus has moved away perhaps uh, from commemorating the war to almost celebrating the war in some ways, which is why I'm particularly pleased to hear about an exhibition called Conflicted uh, Adversaries in Art, which is on at the Town Hall Gallery uh, at Hawthorne Art Centre, which is centering in on conflict and what conflict means and how it's ingrained 
in humanity since childhood. Even we're often taught taught to play war as children long before we're perhaps taught to to, to play falling in love and and families and peace. So uh, it's an intriguing subject for an exhibition. And one of the exhibiting artists, Kieran Boland, joins us in the studio now. Kieran, good morning. G'day, g'day, Richard. Now, um, tell us a little bit about the the brief that you were given by uh, curator uh, uh, Marty Nowak uh, about the show itself. Okay, so the the show came about via um, uh, this work that I'm exhibiting in it uh, was exhibited first at um, Mars Gallery, which has a dedicated black box. Uh, so, and. Um, uh, that's curated by Bree Trenary. Uh That that work was seen by um, Kent, who's Marty's assistant, and Marty being the the, the chief curator, um, it fitted very much her her um, her idea of this show, which uh, really draws on childhood and and its role within conflict. A lot of the works within the the show, including my own, um, other artists, for instance, Juan Ford, Siri Hayes. Um, they're very much looking at, for instance, both, both those two artists have, have constructed guns out of wood, you know, pieces of wood. Um, and, and coming back to Marty's original uh, premise, one really uh, interesting quote she puts at the start of the, the essay is um, to do with to, uh, Winston Churchill's actual um, childhood and and. He was given all these toy soldiers and he was basically preparing his destiny via um, his childhood. His father said, Would you, do, you, do you want to command an army? He had 1,500 soldiers, toy soldiers. So from there, it just he became Winston Churchill. So if it doesn't get you in childhood, um, perhaps later on, certainly not now, but once upon a time, if you were a wayward youth, um, the army would sort you out, which is, you know, so... Um, certainly, it's it's not something which happens today, uh, thankfully. But uh, that's that's an interesting starting point, I think. Yeah. yeah. That, so, I mean, your work you work across uh, a, a variety of media, but with a strong focus on the moving image. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, tell us about the the work, particularly that uh, 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 camouflage, I believe it's called, yeah, which yeah. is the, the the piece in this exhibition. So, it drew on um, uh, as a, as a um, uh, just the history of camouflage and, and, in a sense, the uniform. Um, when we look at the the uniform, the army uniform, uh, even you know, pre hundred years ago, there, it was people took pride in a in a uniform. So it was um, you you were basically a sitting duck. So so, but there was a sportsman uh, uh, like attitude to war, which is which is you know very strange. I think uh, so. The the idea of camouflage, which was invented by Roland Penrose as a as a painter, um, it's it's very much a, a it, it's just a very strange thing coming from the surrealists as well. Camouflage essentially does stem from that. It's about you know, uh, confusing foreground and background. Uh, so this this um, my videos actually got a uh, a boy in a landscape uh, which continually revolves. It's um, so it's it's a little bit like a moving painting. It never stops. Uh, you, you, it's a seamless loop uh, with an army of one. So you could equate that to both uh, when we think of the history of painting, warlike panoramas, but also 
radar and the character actually draws on my own childhood a little bit um radar being being um the character uh, from mash yeah who's a very unheroic soldier but has these uh, almost extra sensory powers of being able to hear helicopters in the distance and whether they're, they're even carrying wounded soldiers the, the the crucial element of it though for me was the sound, the role of sound so moving away from painting which is where i began was you know often to think about sound and so this this whole idea of discipline in in war is is um something which is um sometimes alien to me as well so there's a sense of if you're in a a lovely landscape uh what do you how do you maintain that um so i've got these and what's what's the what's the worst weakness uh that we have is well, well certainly me when i encounter those bubbles you know the bubble wrap. wrap yeah whenever you move house those those bubble wraps so strangely when i had a group if i had a group of these soldiers um there is a sound of almost like a machine gun and so this was this was this was very strange uh anomaly to have um in relation to camouflage which is essentially if you want to hide a landscape you don't make any noise so the temptation to do this was was uh you know pretty strange yeah so with that as in that there's two loops like it's uh going around in two loops the second loop it actually um slows down and and i work with a sound designer geordie miller and he we realized that just purely by slowing it down it sounded like um a battle happening in the distance it was and it all you can tell that as it slows down very gradually that's all it is and it, as it comes back up on the second so it begins uh, so so people watching can hear the sound of bubble wrap which will be familiar to them yeah, you can see bursting him. of bubbles yeah. and then as the child kind of plays with those kind of, he's essentially an army of one oh, well, yeah, uh, yeah bursting but, bubbles so the sound design is then manipulating that so that popping of bubbles then becomes the distant sound of artillery yeah, and then yeah, kind of yeah. brings it back up. So what intrigues me about the work, um, which people can actually uh, look at a video of it on your website, kieranboland.com, um, the the fact that the f- there's something uh, very, very almost abject about a child playing alone that's a tragic figure and I really for me linking that tragedy of a child playing alone to the tragedy of war is a is not necessarily a um, an immediate one but one that is very very clear and and I think uh, uh, poignant in the work yeah there's definitely uh, allusions to uh, we all grew up you know reading Lord of the Flies and so there's there's that element to it and um I think that's through the whole show too. So, uh, you know, just that sense of um, uh, where do we start? How do we maintain? You know, uh, how, what do we do with this hundred years? Uh, yeah, this is what Marty's what she's and she wanted to do something very different. And um, her and Kent Wilson uh, constantly put out these great shows at the Town Hall Galleries. So this, they really wanted to come up with something different for the show. Another thing she mentions too, yeah, just in terms of that school, um, when we, when I saw, uh, she's actually written in the catalogue that um, the the first schools that were introduced the idea of sport um, were military schools as a way of instilling character. So just the the idea of what is character, what is what is childhood, what's the dividing line between childhood and 
you know, how do we define what a, what I mean, a, the a fa- man is? The yeah. fact that armies today still talk about war games. Yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, and war is not a game by any means, but there's a, an immediate parallel there to kind of grown-up soldiers in war games versus children playing at war and playing at soldiers, which, uh, the, the, and as some of the other artists in uh, the exhibition at Town Hall Gallery acknowledge and, and represent picking up a stick and playing with it and pretending it's a gun yeah, um, is yeah. something that seems to be ingrained in children. Uh, and I, the, the question is, of, of course, and it's a question that uh, Juan Ford and uh, other artists in this exhibition, uh, conflicted uh, adversaries in art, are asking is, is that idea of picking up a stick and playing with it as a gun, is that something uh, ingrained in us by our culture and what we grow up in, or is it inherent in, yeah, in yeah, humanity? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, the One of the other uh, works which is incredible is the uh, Matthew Greentree and Connor Grogan work, which really addresses those boundaries that we fight over. So they're, they're even taking into... Um, Oh, to the point of outer space. So, at what point are those boundaries that we're fighting over illusory? Uh, it's it's quite a, quite an amazing work. It's it's like a uh, a show in itself. It's a huge undertaking, and it fits very well in the theme. But that's that's very hard to characterise. You really have to see that one to you know, experience it in person to see it. Yeah. I certainly get the impression that work uh, is again then referencing the 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 trope of sport uh, and sportsmen as soldiers uh, and it's something you, you'll hear every day um, uh, during uh, uh, particularly with the Anzac Day uh, football match coming up for example the, the notion of uh, uh, footballers as, uh, uh, as warriors going out onto the battlefield and it's kind of like for me the very notion of dr- trying to suggest a parallel between what f- highly paid footballers are doing for a couple of hours in the afternoon versus soldiers who are actually sacrificing their lives there, there are no parallels really between yeah, that yeah. but uh, again very abstract yeah but again yeah. The, the work is exploring that to a degree the exhibition is conflicted uh, adversaries in art uh, on now at open on the 21st of april uh, running through until the 31st of may at uh, the town hall gallery at hawthorne art center 360 burwood road hawthorne uh, more details at townhallgallery.com.au we've been speaking to artist kieran boland who's one of the artists represented in the exhibition. Kieran, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Richard. Smart Art's the name of the program you're listening to. Richard Watts, my name. Uh, now, my next guest joins me in the studio. Uh, Hallie Shellam is amongst other things, I was looking at her bio. She is a Melbourne-based theatre maker, director, performer and dramaturg. Um, and she's created a work that is being presented by Metanoia Theatre at the Mechanics Institute in Brunswick, which is an opportunity for an intimate audience experience to remember an event that never happened. Hallie, I'm intrigued. <laughs> Welcome to Triple R. Thanks, Richard. It's, um, it's, I'm a long-time listener, first-time guest, so I'm pretty <laughs> excited to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you on because uh, your work, Is This Somewhere You've Been Before, uh, was on at the Proximity Festival in Perth last That's right. year. Proximity 2014 at we, the Fremantle Arts Centre. And, and Proximity is an art 
festival, which is for audiences of one at a time to experience this this um, unique, intimate kind of live art take on performance. And so I've been kind of gazing across the Nullarbor for several years going, I really want to go, I really want to experience some of the work. And what happens? A Melbourne theatre maker who's doing work at Proximity is now, you're, uh, you're presenting this work for us. I like the Brunswick. idea of um, gazing across the Nullarbor at a very intimate work, Richard. That's a good, that's a good um, kind of contrast. Yeah, Proximity Festival is an amazing um, one-to-one festival. The concept is 12 artists um, making a 12-minute performance each and 12 audience members. So it's sort of you do 12 performances a night, so it's quite an intensive program, but it's sort of like an anti-festival because there's not really many people around. There's no sort of foyer bars or post-show. It's sort of just you as an audience member um, navigate your way around these 12 performances or however many you're seeing in that block. Um, yeah. And so your work, uh, is this somewhere you've been before, which was described uh, as a standout at Proximity Festival, a seamless, immersive and complex piece that takes full advantage of the format to transport its audience completely. That's a quote from Arts Hub. Oh, sounds I work, pretty good, doesn't I, it? I work for Arts Hub, but I didn't write that though, so <laughs> just to make that clear. But the thing that fascinates me about this is not only are you working on a piece with an audience of one to create an event, a memory of an event that never happened, but you're doing that through multiple uses of senses. So not just the the traditional theatrical experience of going, we are watching a show, we are listening to the sound design and the speech. Kind of you're using scent, yeah, for right. example, which triggers such strong memory. Yeah, well I think I'd always been fascinated with the sense that the, the link between um, uh, smell and memory and I work a lot sort of with the idea of memory and identity and um, I guess where the the line between fiction and memory, I suppose, um, and and also I guess what you sort of salvage about your own identity out of out of that merging of fiction and identity, um, and I'd always been really interested. Actually, I think since I saw a Royal Deluxe show back in Perth in probably the late 90s where they did this enormous out, outdoor work with this huge big smell machine and they had like these smells of like cut grass and roses and dog poo and 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 it was sort of really powerful even this incredible open air kind of huge huge scale experience um I'd always been very interested in what that what that could do um and then of course yeah in an intimate one-to-one experience um that goes somewhere else altogether I guess because there's just the two of you um forming something together really I have a narrative um that I suggest to my audience member but they bring a huge amount with them as well and so the smell um stimulation I guess just takes them to the edge of their own imagination and their own memory and that's where the show kind of takes place on the edge yeah yeah uh and am I right in thinking it's something of a of a mystery a missing person story yeah, it's not sort of a direct investigation into missing people. Um, I think it uses the idea of um, of a forensic interview, perhaps into yeah somebody's disappearance, um, as a sort of a structure around which to um, yeah build an inquiry um, that sort of leaves reality at some point and enters yeah that space that I was talking about somewhere between imagination and fiction, which for me is a fascinating area to explore because 
I think any adult is aware that they have memories which aren't actual, actually theirs. They're not real memories. They're childhood stories that your mother has told you that you think you remember, events from your childhood that you swear that you were present. That's and then right. your mother or grandmother might say, no, 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 you weren't born you weren't even then. You born, exactly. Um, and it's amazing how much memory... Um, makes things true. If you f- if you feel like you remember it, you can swear black and blue that you were at an event, or um, yeah, participated in something that you weren't. You weren't. It would have been impossible to be present at. And I think um, I find that that really interesting because the conviction that you have about those sorts of things, um, it, it's very hard to challenge. You know. Yeah. I find it fascinating to explore this topic theatrically, because. It, it's a lot harder to get the the, the finesse and the control uh, and the nuance around scent and around memory as opposed to saying, no, that lighting uh, rig needs to be adjusted slightly, that actor isn't quite hitting their mark. Those areas in tr- traditional drama you can shape and control and have much more kind of exacting control over for a work such as this, is this something you've been before? How do you shape and and control and and direct a work like this? Well, it's interesting. When I started making the work, I was over here and everything else that was happening with proximity was um, uh, back in Perth. And so I was sort of over here... I thought making a small play for one person. Um, and so that's what I sort of began putting together. And it wasn't really until I'd had a few audience members, like friends and colleagues, come through to have the experience that I was like, oh, it's really it's really not that at all. And so what I really had to do was just think of a, a map, really, or a kind of um, a, a structure that would allow somebody else to interrupt it, to even maybe sabotage it, um, but would sort of be able to maintain an integrity and continue. I would be able to sort of stay on track with the show regardless of really what the audience um, may or may not provide. I couldn't really rely on my audience for anything, yeah. So, uh, which really opens up kind of a lot of risk creatively, but I imagine also the potential for unexpected delights every time you stage this work if you don't know how it's going to end up where it's going to go. That's absolutely right. I think, you know, often people would sort of consider the exchange as a privilege for the audience to sort of have a performer giving them this particular time, but I think it's also an incredible privilege to share that moment with your audience. I mean, your audience is also, they do participate in the work and they are giving you sort of 12 or 15 minutes of of their time to enter into a, a completely imaginative state with you and play around and that's that is kind of a massive privilege and um a gift as well is this somewhere you've been before is being presented uh by metanoia theater at the mechanics institute in sydney road brunswick um and it's launching the metanoia live works program now i understand there's a range of quite daring and intimate performance works being presented do you are you familiar with the rest of the program um a little bit um not not in sort of any kind of uh incredibly deep way we've sort of met each other um i know that there's going to be an interactive game that's sort of from the launch seemed like it was based on some kind of cult um, which looks like it will be a really pretty amazing experience um, I'm looking forward to the um, the MKA um, work as well I've, I've sort of been a massive fan of theirs for a while and then 10 C's um, is going to see 10 artists take over 10 different spaces uh, at the Mechanics Institute and represent and to sort of take on one of the 10 commandments um, and sort of find an immersive way of representing 
um, that work. And the Mechanics Institute's a wonderful space because there's there are the theatre spaces and there's a studio space, a black box, and then also quite a lot of really interesting hidden spaces um, and storerooms and that kind of thing, which will be really interesting to have an explore of. Um, and I think you know Greg and Gurkham um, Ajaralu and and Shane Grant are doing an amazing job at sort of you know really welcoming new art into that space. Uh, for more details about what else is on offer at uh, Metanoia as part of their live works program, uh, metanoiatheatre.com. And the venue is the Mechanics Institute on the corner of Sydney Road and Ligon Street in Brunswick, which uh, I've seen many great shows at over the years. Um, and I'm definitely intrigued to see, uh, is this somewhere you've been before? Because, the whole, again, as we've said, that whole notion of blurring the line between fiction and memory, between theatre and live art, um, and incorporating taste and touch and scent into into a work can, can offer an enormous amount emotionally as well as artistically, I think. So mm. have, what kind of responses have you had from audiences afterwards? Have people been surprised at the depth of, th- of, of emotion and memory they feel? I think so. Um, I mean, it's, I, th- I think in general most people have sort of um, really come on come into the journey and they've they've, they've, I hate using that word journey I promised I wouldn't never mind (laughs) come on a journey um it will blow your mind no I think most people have really found um found it amazing that in such a short space of time they've gone so far so um a lot of people sort of felt actually quite disoriented um when we did it at the Fremantle Arts Centre would come out and sort of have, have forgotten a little bit where they were and sort of had had really gone into another reality which was you know amazing um and and quite wonderful to witness because in a way I'm watching them have the experience I'm not really as involved in it as they as the audience is which is you know part of it. Speaking of different realities uh, from this kind of intimate work that you've uh, created and uh, performing uh, you've also gone off into a completely different world you're one of the part of the women directors program at the MTC. That's right. So that's a remarkable extreme from this one-on-one intimate work to the the behemoth uh, that is a state theatre company. Tell us about that experience just briefly. Um, It's again it's a really great um, sort of opportunity to understand how you know the mechanics of, a, of an organisation like the MTC, and um, you know what the decision-making processes are for programming and that kind of thing. Um, and you know, it's, it is—it's—it's it's, it's something on a scale that I've never made work in myself. I've done a bit of work at the STC, but that's again a very different sort of place. Um, yeah, and just beginning to understand um, what's what's at stake in a company like that's very different from making work in a in an independent way. I think one of the things they said was when you're making a work even just for the Fairfax which is their smallest the smallest venue they use it's like 50 weeks at La Mama full houses <laughs> and it's like oh okay wow that's a lot of weeks <laughs> so just beginning to understand the scale I think is um really interesting yeah scale is certainly one of the elements that is this somewhere you've been before explores scale and sense and memory created and performed by Hallie Shellam uh, it's on until from Uh, Tuesday the 28th of April until Saturday the 3rd of May at the Mechanics Institute in Sydney Road, Brunswick. Uh, Bookings and more info at metanoiatheatre.com or you can call 9387-3376. It is performed Tuesdays to Fridays from 6.30pm, Saturday from 2pm, Sunday from 4pm. Performances take place 
uh, every 30 minutes. I suspect that there's going to be a lot of interest in this, Hallie. So, uh, yeah, I there aren't be- many tickets, so book now if you want to come. <laughs> book now, metanoiatheatre.com or 9387-3376. Hallie Shellen, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Richard. time for our fortnightly dancing on the radio segment. Gerard Van Dyke joins us solo in the studio today, which is entirely apt because you're working on a new solo at the moment. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, there I am. Am I here? You I'm are. Here. Uh, yes, I am. I'm working on a solo. Thanks for plugging it. <laughs> when can uh, audiences get along to see it? Like paying, uh, paying punters? Paying punters. Um, August. Uh, the season is the last two weeks of August, and I'll be presenting that at the fantastic independent um, underground venue 45 downstairs. Great. Okay, literally underground. Mm. Um, we will uh, talk about that closer to the date. Let's do it. But um, in terms of the dance world, things in Melbourne, as we said uh, a fortnight ago, are a little quiet post-dance massive. Everyone is catching their breath and recovering yep. from a, a frenetic... And rehearsing and thinking and, you know, contemplating, I think. There's Working a lot of that going on. Yeah, a lot of work in development. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that has just happened is the Green Room Awards. I know. Um, it, was a, uh, it was a good year, actually, last year. I remember when um, I came on at the end, your last show for 2014, and we wrapped the year up and talked about it. I was reminded about that this morning uh, as I was preparing for this show, and we talked about um, the style of work generally, you know, across the year. And there seemed to be um, uh, installation based dance works um, really coming to the fore and in particular um, when it came to the Green Room Awards um, uh, some of the recipients of the awards were uh, for concept and realisation uh, James Batchelor for his work Island was... Um, oh that was his wonderful science fiction in, in themed and Yeah and at Dance House piece. and it was like a real trippy um, installation piece uh, and then that matched, um, that was actually tied with Lillian Steiner's Noise Quartet Meditation which occurred out at the substation and um, was, uh, I guess, I guess meditation is a really good word to describe it. Um, so very con- big congratulations to those two. Um, and I- even when you look at um, the uh, the nominations, especially for male dancer, you had um, uh, you had uh, Wanenga Blanco, who actually um, was the recipient this year. He, uh, hey, we're not supposed to say one. And I have to disclose, I'm on the Green Room Awards um, dance panel. Um, so I'm on the Green Room Awards <laughs> Independent Theatre Panel. So uh, I have no conflict of interest when it comes to talking about dance. Um, so, uh, but, and then, you know, even the, the list of Wananga Blanco won for um, Padigarang, uh, Barang- Bangara Dance Theatre's work, and he's been an, an extraordinarily strong uh, male dancer for years and in, in so many Bangara works. So it's, it's fantastic he's been realised. Um, and he wasn't actually even the lead in the work. Um, he may have had a couple of lead moments or solos, but, um, and then you know, these, um, I guess contemporary nominees in that category Benjamin Hancock was excellent in his work Princess and um, as was Lee Searle uh, in his Trisha Brown Company com- uh, work in Melbourne Festival Rogues um, and big congratulations also to Lauren Langlois for um, her uh, female dancer award uh, for Complexity of Belonging which was the MTC and Chunky Move um, collaboration I think that was also um, very worthwhile um, mention 
And finally, I think one of the other great ones is Pattergring, the Bangara Dance Theatre won for Best Ensemble Dance, um, and they really shone uh, last year, I thought. Um, as, a, as a collective, they were, they were seamless, faultless, I thought, on stage. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the new Bangara show later in the year, Law. Mm. Lord, that's right, um, and um, yes. Yeah, so that's that's Green Room Awards. It was I didn't actually go to the award ceremony. I um, I've been going for so many years now, and I decided I was going to have one off. I also didn't go because I uh, had to do an interview for um, a, a story. I was uh, an interview I was chasing for work at eight pm. So uh, somebody mm. said, "Look, the one year old will be in bed by then, <laughs> and I'll be able to talk without uh, being distracted. Mm. And then if you call any later, I'll be asleep." So. <laughs> <laughs> I had that narrow window of opportunity, so yes. sadly didn't go either. But I heard um, very positive reports about the award ceremony. Yes, yes, it was long as award ceremonies are. They trying, are trying to time. corral all of. Only Melbourne's. happens once a year, and we celebrate and platform and Melbourne's best. I think it's it's fine. So congratulations mm. to all the nominees because to be nominated by your peers is significant yes, achievement already. Absolutely. And congratulations to the recipients of this year's Green Room Awards as well. The uh, awards presented annually in Melbourne for professional performance on the stage across a variety of performing art forms. Yeah. Yes, excellence abroad. Um, Speaking of excellence, yes. I hear there's something excellent happening in Brisbane yeah, soon. Look, there's something really interesting. Um, there is a colleague um, of mine and uh, I guess an old friend, but um, really um, somewhat of a mentor and an elder now in the dance community in Australia. Um, his name is Brian Lucas. Um, I've worked with him. He... Um, He's a, a beautiful mover and a consummate actor as well. And, you know, he must be, I think, I'm pretty sure he's in his 50s now. Um, and he's also, from memory, about six foot yes four yeah, or yeah. something he's, he's a giant tall gaunt shaved head yep. the first time I ever saw him perform was in the courtyard at La Mama I was I was there with you actually yeah. I remember that and, and he I had was this massive skirt on that, like yeah he came rose up the stage. out of his yeah. sheet like skirt that covered the entire stage and I was gobsmacked mm. like that is one of those moments that you do not forget mm. that kind of performance and, and exquisite control so he's doing an Oscar Wilde work I know this is I think um, my hat to anyone who decides to go down the path of an Oscar Wilde, but also De Profundis, um, uh, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and he's he's been working on this for some time. I've been following him on social media, etc. And uh, it's it's um, presented at the Brisbane Powerhouse um, uh, from the 22nd of April, so it just opened actually, and it's through until the 2nd of May. Um, once again, a short season. But I um, implore anyone who is in Brisbane listening um, that. Uh, well, I, I suppose if you're listening right now, you do enjoy the arts. Get along. You will not be disappointed. You'll see something fresh and challenging and, um, and I think, defining. I would love to jump on a plane and fly up and see it, but mm. sadly I have no money. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, look, uh, more details at brisbanepowerhouse.org. Um, I hope that this will tour. Um, and certainly, again, I also, as you just have, uh, Gerard, implore anybody listening in Brisbane or surrounds, if you're streaming us from uh, the Gold Coast or from Lismore or somewhere like that, mm. head up to Brisbane to the powerhouse and check out uh, Oscar Wilde's De Profundis. It's... Uh, De Profundis uh, is Latin, out of the depths of sorrow. Uh, it's the letter that uh, Wilde wrote to his lover um, or his 
at that stage ex-lover um, Alfred Lord Douglas uh, while in prison for two years doing uh, hard labour for the crime of gross indecency. Um, so, and it, it's a remarkable long letter, uh, mm. and to see this done as a as a, a dance performance, I'll be fascinated, and I really hope that it does tour. So. I think that there's so much universal material, and I uh, yeah, I, same. I hope it tours, and um, I'll uh, in fact I'll be I'll be contacting him and making sure that he get, does his best to get it down here. Um, and also coming up, um, you mentioned a little while ago is um, Sydney Dance Company's Frame of Minds coming to town. Um, that's on at the Sumner Theatre at MTC uh, in South Bank from the 6th to the 16th of May. So that is around the corner. Um, now, once again, um, Sydney Dance Company are uh, that... I, I I think sometimes when you use the word neoclassical, it's it's a, in a derogatory term, um, or it's sort of in the context of putting something down a bit. But uh, look, I think they do this really, really well, and um, they're always a beautiful company to see. They're, they're technically extraordinary. Um, the dancers are all. Um, uh, Super flexible, super strong, uh, really fit, um, massive amounts of stamina, and um, and you know they they actually there are some company members there who are um, are not ready to retire, and they're not that young and I think that that's a fantastic thing. Um, well to see a range of ages uh, in a dance performance on stage is always engaging just to, to watch the difference the, the different styles of bodies and the way they move Frame of Mind, the Sydney Dance Company production 6th to the 16th of May at the South Bank Theatre, that's the MTC's theatre in the Sumner and the other dance work that's coming up that I'm really in, uh, really looking forward to uh, is Rotunda from the mm. New Zealand Dance Company, whose work I've never seen before. No, I've never seen it live. I've done a bit of YouTubing, and um, uh, they are massively energetic. There's, there's this really interesting relationship that I've, um, that I've noticed and acknowledged over the years of working with dance artists from New Zealand um, that uh, they are um, they're, is similar to Australians in the amount of space that we have to rehearse in. They're used to eating up a lot of space and they're, they're, they're Amazonian in the way that they do that. They are just they just go for it and they're muscular and they're strong and um, I think I think there's a real beautiful um, sensibility coming out of New Zealand. There always has been, actually, especially with, um, I guess, leaders like Douglas Wright. Um, and uh, oh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a number of beautiful artists. And um, there's, in particular, who now resides in Melbourne is Sarah Jane Howard. And she's um, a classic example of um, extraordinary um, technique, strength, um, and, and all-round performance um, talent, you know, not just a dancer. Uh, so this is, I'm really looking forward to this, and it's got Darabin City um, brass. brass. band, yeah. Mm. So every city they're performing in Australia, they perform with a local brass band. Uh, so here in Melbourne, New Zealand Dance Company's Rotunda will feature Darabin City brass. It's a work um, that is honouring the 1915 Gallipoli landings. I am, as I mentioned earlier in the show, having a little bit of Gallipoli fatigue already. Mm -hmm. Same. Um, there's a, been a lot of stuff around, but the opportunity 
to see that explored from a New Zealand perspective rather yes, than true. an Australian perspective will be a valuable one. And as we said, how often do we get to see New Zealand's leading dance company performing in Australia? Well, that's a really good point. Hardly ever. And we, you know, it's... Okay, so there's a big stretch of water between us, but um, we're kind of the closest next big city. So, it, you know, you'd hope it would happen a little more frequently. Yeah. So New Zealand dance companies Rotunda on an arts centre Melbourne from the 7th to the 9th of May. It's a very short season. Mm. Thursday, Friday, Saturday only. Definitely one to check out and get along to if I'll you can. I'll be there. I'll be there for sure. Um, and I think that's about it. There's, um, we can, you know, once we go see these things... <laughs> we can review them and them. then there'll be a little bit more dance coming up later in the year. Yep. There's always something happening. Yes. So uh, we'll check that out. Gerard Van Dyke, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thank you, Richard. And we'll catch you in a fortnight's time uh, to talk more dance. Shakespeare's As You Like It is even older than 2004, but it is nonetheless a timeless romantic comedy classic, uh, and it is the current production by Bell Shakespeare playing at Art Centre Melbourne in the Fairfax studio, previewing tonight, then opening tomorrow night and running through until the 10th of May. Peter Evans joins us in the studio from Bell Shakespeare to tell us about this particular play and why does it remain a timeless classic? That's one of the things I want to know, Peter. Good morning, Richard. Um, well, as you like, it's an interesting play. Um, it was written in 1599, and it was this remarkable year for Shakespeare because they'd just built the globe. And so they had this brand new venue, and they all had shares in it. And he, in one year, wrote, as you like it, Julius Caesar, Henry V, and Hamlet. That's a pretty remarkable year. That's pretty good, isn't it? As a kind of uh, as a kind of manager, writer, actor, just kind of pulls out all the stops. And of course, what we're heading into over the next kind of five or six years is the kind of real golden period, particularly for tragedies. But I like as you like it because I think you can see that he's writing for an ensemble. I think you can see the practitioner inside it, that you get, even though we don't know exactly who played what, you can certainly see that he's writing for certain actors' strengths. And it's a very unusual, eclectic group of characters that sit around a play that for the first 30 to 40 minutes is incredibly plot-driven, that it's almost like a history play. It's like a, a, a clash of history play and fairy tale. And then after that 40 minutes, once they take off into the Forest of Arden, it kind of just explodes into, while not plotless, certainly the plot becomes less and less important and actually becomes about character and becomes about ideas. And so I, I, I can't help but think that he's actually finding little pieces for his actors um, to explore their strengths. And also, I think, you know, showing showing the, 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 the company off in his new space for his audience. Now, one of the things you say, the fact that he, he knew the company and he knew the actors, he was writing for a company, of course, of all men, in which men play women. Yeah. Uh, and so, but then that is then given a, a whole different and, and fascinating and engaging spin in As You Like It with... Uh, as in the day, men playing women playing men. Yeah. Uh, so it, it plays with gender. There's, there's, there's some uh, 
probably some of the, the more overt homoeroticism that we, uh, in Shakespeare. It's not something I automatically associate with Shakespeare, but it's definitely there in As You Like It. C- certainly, certainly. Um, uh, yeah, it's a very sexy play. Um, one can only imagine what these, these um, boys and young men um, that he was writing for were playing these female characters because, you know, while predominantly, you know, um, Shakespeare's plays are full of men, there are remarkable female characters uh, in there, and Rosalind, I would suggest, is one of the great characters he ever wrote. Um, it's the largest female role, along with probably Cleopatra and maybe Juliet. Um, and, and if you talk to Zara Newman, who, who one of the reasons I'm doing the play is because of my great love for Zara and Zara's work, um, I always think that, as you like, it's a bit like Hamlet, that you don't actually program it unless you've got the actor that you want. And uh, an old mentor of mine once said that um, with these kind of plays, you need to be interested in the mind of the actor playing one of these characters. And certainly Zara um, will be familiar to a lot of your listeners, uh, is astonishing, and, uh, and, and this is a character in which you can kind of tear it up. Um, but as I was saying, the, the, we can only imagine that the strength of these young men who are playing these roles, because these are big parts, and, and Rosalind, in a way, is, is kind of an author or a director in the play, that, that once we get to the Forest of Arden, it's almost like she takes the play by the scruff of the neck and takes it in the direction she wants. And certainly when I talk to writers about the, uh, the act, particularly of um, writing plays, is sometimes when you find the strength a character that can take your your work in a different direction and and I can see perhaps that Shakespeare got quite fascinated by her and she's taken the play not away from him but certainly in lots of different directions. Uh, it's tempting to read all kind of manner of, uh, of, <laughs> of uh, suppositions into the, the history behind that but um, something that is more concrete is the fact, I mean you're the, the co-artistic director mm. of, of Bell Shakespeare you're directing John Bell, the founding artistic director mm. in this production of As You Like It. I understand it's his last role, uh, his last acting role as artistic director of of Bell Shakespeare. That's right. It's the last time he's on stage as an actor and artistic director. Obviously in the future he'll be back uh, acting but uh, uh, as a freelancer, let's say. Uh, Are you nervous directing John, given that he kind of knows Shakespeare so intimately? He's Mm. lived and breathed Shakespeare uh, even prior to the founding of Bell Shakespeare. Well, one of the things I love about working on Shakespeare is that it keeps you very, very humble. And so each time I approach a play, you just keep learning. And so any chance that you have somebody with more experience and more knowledge in the room is a good idea. I've known John since 1995, and in fact he gave me my first professional gig in 97. Uh, and that was after I was an assistant director to Steve Burkoff in 96. So it's been a quite a long, um, a long friendship and a long creative relationship. I then got to direct him in about the mid-2000s in The Tempest, which was Prospero, and I was nervous then as a, as a, as a youngish director, um, and Prospero he'd played a couple of times before. Um, but he's a very generous actor and a very generous man, um, and so we had a very, very good time. So I, I was pleased when he put his hand up for Jaquies, which in a way is unusual casting. Um, but I think he's having quite a good time because it's not the lead. He doesn't have to carry it. He can be kind of one of the gang. Um, but he also brings a great sort of gravitas to that role. The 
this is another one I think is um, is typical of As You Like It. It's a character that isn't really has got anything to do with plot at all. Is really there for, um, as this kind of you know slightly misanthropic, um, sceptical character who kind of uh, uh, is there just to poke fun at everybody else. Apart from Rosalind, it should be said, there's a beautiful scene between he and Zara where. Almost Jay Queezen is trying to impress Rosalind, but Rosalind is the smartest character on the stage and runs rings around him. One of the intriguing things about As You Like It as a play is... Um, today, we one of the things we demand of drama often is character development. Mm. We want to see story arcs and characters go through change and struggle with change and eventually be redeemed or something. The characters in As You Like It seem to adapt to change remarkably quickly and easily. <laughs> they do, they do. Um, one of the things that often happens in Shakespeare is the women tend to be smarter than the, the, the men. Uh, we see that in, uh, in mis- plays like Midsummer Night's Dream and in Romeo and Juliet, and we see it again in As You Like It, that in a way... Rosalind dresses up as a boy ostensibly to stay safe going into the Forest of Arden. But the Forest of Arden is not really a very dangerous place. Um, I I like to think of it much more as a kind of spiritual place, that it's one of those sort of... um, It's less a real forest than a a place where people find themselves or or somehow kind of complete their relationships. And uh, she stays a boy in order to take her prospective lover through a series of tests in a way to kind of get him to understand what real love is that that Orlando charming as he is um, is a bit in love with love and uh, is a kind of fierce romantic but it's not grounded in anything whereas Rosalind understands that that, that being in love is not enough to sustain a marriage. Um, and it has some really kind of beautiful observations about that and about, about what it would take to actually stay true, you know, over the long term. Um, so he goes through probably quite a lot of change. Um, but as you say, Rosalind adapts very well. Ro- Rosalind just seems to find herself and, and get smarter and, and wittier and stronger as the play goes on. Now, you just used the phrase a moment ago, a series of tests. You've clearly undergone a series of tests yourself in order to be selected as the co-artistic director of Bell Shakespeare. Um, uh, John is stepping down from the role after 25 years at the end of this year. You're taking over as artistic director. Mm. So um, uh, both a burden and a challenge, I'm sure. Mm. Um, what do you see as the future for Bell Shakespeare under your leadership? Do you intend to maintain John's vision introduce your own tell us about your plans for the company well John's done it's an astonishing achievement really starting this company from scratch and really for the first seven or eight years there was there was no government support it was all philanthropic and and corporate and and it's grown into a very strong company like it's we're still relatively small but very strong um, company and John's explored lots of different areas and and in a way I'm kind of going to pick the eyes out of my favourite bits of Bell Shakespeare going forward. Obviously, Shakespeare's going to stay as our mainstay, and there's an awful lot of plays that I haven't directed yet that I want to, and a couple that I haven't done very well that I'd like to return to. There's a number of directors that I would love to be part of the company, but I'm also very interested in new writing, and it was something that I got to explore a bit when I was at Melbourne Theatre Company, and I haven't been doing as much of recently. And one of the things I'm keen to do is that we've had... um, 
Justin Fleming recently doing uh, translations of Moliere and we did it with um, Tartuffe and with School for Wives and I'm quite keen to engage more Australian writers to work in translation and and adaptation and to take some of these plays um, and, and find an Australian voice in them. So that's something I'm very keen to, to add to the repertoire as we go forward. We've had particular success with the comedies and with Moliere but in the past with Goldoni also. Um, so that's something I'm hoping to do. And and really, I'm very keen on really looking at the diverse ways that we can explore these plays. Um, text is very important to Bell Shakespeare, and I share that with, with John. And, and, and in a way, uh, in answer to your question, I'll be continuing his legacy. We have very similar values, even if sometimes our work is different. The core values are the same. And so text will always be important, but I, I, I'm fascinated by the, the variety of ways that you can produce this work. The current work that is being produced by Bell Shakespeare is As You Like It. It's on at Art Centre Melbourne in the Fairfax studio, previewing tonight and then the season running from the 24th of April until the 10th of May. More information at www.bellshakespeare.com.au or artcentremelbourne.com.au. Uh, this is, as we've said, John Bell's final year as Artistic Director and... Um, Part of me is really wanting to fly up to Sydney to see The Tempest, which I think is uh, mm. the, his final uh, directorial work uh, right. as artistic director with the company. So uh, I suspect there's going to be a flood of uh, Shakespeare devotees and admirers of John's from around the country getting up to Sydney uh, in August, September to see The Tempest. But right now, Melbournians, get along and see As You Like It, directed by Peter Evans, the co-artistic director of Bell Shakespeare. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Richard. for me to go. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company. I'll catch you again next Thursday morning between 9am and midday with more arts news and reviews and conversations and, uh, and general chit-chat about culture. Uh, catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci. Nabila Petrucci.